And uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, get to worship uh, through song. Now we get to worship through um, God's Word. Aiden, I kind of chuckled to myself as you talked about food. God's Word being food to our soul. I'm hungry right now. Uh, so I was like, man, I, I, I'm hungry. I, I, that resonates with me. Uh, and we've got a little while to go before I'm going to get to eat anything. But um, I think in a sense, right, being hungry physically, uh, we understand that reality. And man, God help us, right? God help us that we would be hungry spiritually and long for God to speak uh, to us. And really, that's the desire and the intent on any Sunday morning. We want to open God's word and have God uh, speak to us. Um, last four weeks, this is week five uh, of five in our sermon series on the book of Esther. And uh, we're going to start in Esther 8 this morning. We're going to uh, finish the book. We'll do three chapters, although chapter 10 is only three verses, so um, it's not much of a chapter. Uh, I've, I found it interesting, actually, a lot of sermon series, when they go through the book of Esther, will actually stop after chapter 7. And in one sense, I totally get it because you, you've resolved the immediate tension, the immediate conflict uh, between Mordecai and Haman. Um, uh, Esther and Mordecai have been spared. And, and so in one sense, like I, I, I get where um, people may wrap up there. But the, really two problems with that. One is God's word doesn't finish at the end of Esther chapter 7. There's three other chapters that, uh, that play out in this book. And, and uh, uh, Esther 8, 9, and 10 is no less uh, God's uh, holy, infallible, perfect word as the first seven chapters are. And so, uh, right, we want the whole counsel of God's word uh, to speak to us. But I think the bigger issue that a lot of people will stop short of finishing the book is really tied to the content of what shows up in Esther 8, 9, and 10, specifically in Esther 9. And so let me just, right out of the gate here, give you a preface that there are some hard truths and, and some things that, honestly, in our day and age, we don't want to talk about, we don't want to deal with, we don't want to be um, uh, forthright with, and, and yet I think we need to be. I think as believers, these are some of the most important truths uh, that, that we wrestle with, and it's the idea of God's wrath and God's judgment. And even saying that, some of you maybe recoiled a little bit like, oh man, I'm in one of those churches today. And if you're visiting with us, I'm not sure, you know, what your experience in church has been. So I've been in some churches that have really um, done a really poor job of, of handling God's wrath and God's judgment, but it's a critical part to God's story. It's a crucial aspect and a crucial reality of what God uh, says and speaks to his people and what you and I need to know. And so we'll get to that. We're going to spend a lot of our time dealing with that issue because that's where the text will spend a fair amount of time dealing with uh, the issue. But th this is a narrative. This is a story. Let's move to the story here for a moment. And remember last week where we finished, Haman was hanged on the gallows after trying to annihilate the Jews and to have Mordecai murdered. And so while the immediate threat in terms of the story of Esther has been um, eliminated, we haven't resolved the much larger tension, which is that the entire nation of the Jewish people has been um, handed over to destruction. And that, that, that situation has not been resolved because the edict still stands. Even though Haman has been killed, the author of this edict, the mastermind behind this edict is no longer living. That edict still stands. And so there's a very prominent issue uh, that has to get resolved in the text. And so let's get to work here 
uh, on this text here this morning. Here's, here's the main idea, the nail, the theme, whatever you want to call it. All right, here it is. Listen, listen, listen. God will finish his mission by delivering his people. Now, we get real excited about that first part. He will finish his mission by delivering his people. But here's the other side of God finishing his mission is he's going to destroy his enemies. God is going to destroy those who would come against him, who would reject him, who would rebel against him, who would fight him. Uh, In the end, God will finish his mission uh, either by delivering his people or by destroying his enemies. And what you'll see in Esther 8, 9, and 10 is this incredibly strong contrast between how God handles his people and and those who um, would stand to oppose or come against God. Uh, but before we go any further, I think what would be best for us to do is to stop, to um, pray, to, uh, you know, if there's, if there's, I think every Sunday we need God's wisdom when we open his word, but I think that's especially true this Sunday as we deal with uh, really some very difficult, hard issues, uh, and some of us no doubt have had some poor experiences uh, with respect to unpacking the judgment and the wrath of God uh, in our lives, and we certainly don't want that to be another one of those experiences, but we're also not going to walk away or shy away from that issue either. All right, so let's pray. Let's ask God uh, to do what only he could do. And as always, we'll pray for another church in the area. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, we thank you for the fullness of your word. We thank you that uh, your word gives us everything that we need. Um, Sometimes that's a really easy thing to say and to state, and we can wholeheartedly believe that and love that, and and we cling to that. Um, And then sometimes we come to texts that are just kind of hard, and we maybe struggle or wrestle through some of those things. Uh, and so we need your wisdom and your guidance on that. And so I pray this morning that your spirit would be moving and working within us, that your spirit would give us wisdom and insight, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of what you have for us here today. God, not only for us, I pray this morning for Pastor Jeremy Hickman and for Vertical Church, for a church plant that, that hasn't even started yet and just in the initial stages, and yet we pray for this church uh, that you would be honored that you would be worshipped, that you would be glorified in and through these guys. And that in this group of believers as well, that you would give them eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, and hearts to know and understand uh, your desire, your truth, and your work uh, within them. So God, we pray for us now. Open our eyes. Uh, God, help us to see. Come speak to us. Uh, Some of us need a hard, firm word from you today. Uh, to speak into areas of of sin or maybe apathy or hardness of heart in our lives. Others of us need uh, the the gentle, uh, tender encouragement that you bring. And God, what I love is that your word can do both in equal measure, uh, in equal form, um, even though it's the same word being spoken. And so we pray that your spirit would accomplish that for your will and for your good purpose. We pray this in your name and in your name alone, Lord Jesus. Amen. Maybe by way of overview, let me just give you a brief synopsis of the end of the book of Esther. And really three main points in the story as we finish up uh, here this morning uh, with this book. Really, Esther chapter 8, you see this new edict uh, that's going to come to the people. This, the, a new edict for God's people is actually the first sermon point. And really what, what it's doing is it's undoing what had been done. So, so we're going to go, we're going to undo some of the issues that had happened because of Haman. We're going to see that in Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 9 is, is we're going to see God's deliverance of his people. And, and really, we're going to see God doing what needed to be done to protect or to spare his people. It's also in there that we're going to see God dealing with um, 
uh, his enemies and, and, and judging his enemies. And then in the latter part of chapter 9, and then through the rest of the book into chapter 10, we're going to see this idea around remembering God's work. And, and you and I really is, uh, in a lot of ways, being exhorted and challenged uh, to do so. But let's start with this first idea, Esther chapter 8, a new edict for God's people. And let me just begin to read a little bit of what's going on here. Uh, it says at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, on that day, on the day that Haman was hanged, on the day that these banquets had unfolded and Mordecai had been honored, on that same day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So they, they revealed to the king, hey, uh, we're actually related. Um, and, and, and we're Jews, and right, all this stuff, uh, all the connect points that, uh, that play out there. Verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And of course, the signet ring was really like the king's seal or his signature. Uh, unlimited authority was tied uh, to someone who had that. He gave it to Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So in one sense, it kind of ties off a lot of what we looked at last week. But then notice this, verse 3, right? The author returns us to the larger tension, the larger issue of the plight of the Jewish people. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it pleased the king and if I'd found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and if and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So Esther, bearing her heart, bearing her soul, pouring herself out before the king. King, would you respond to this? And you see in verse 7 and 8, the king's response, an initial glance, it looks like a really odd response. Here's what he says to Esther and Mordecai. Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. He's like, well, I gave you Haman and his home, and he's dead. Okay, um, that's great. But what about revoking this edict? You get this response in verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. And then he says this, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. There's really two sides to this. Right? This is where a historical understanding helps us understand some of what's going on because the, the, the initial edict that, that set out to destroy the Jews, right, in the Persian Empire, it fell into the law of the Medes and the Persians. And if you know anything about the Medes and the Persians, you see this with uh, Daniel and the lions then as well, same thing, that, that any law, any edict that was written by the king was irrevocable. And so part of what the king is saying, he's like, I can't undo that. I, I, I can't just eliminate that or pretend like that's not there. The, this is an edict that exists and there's nothing that I can do to undo this. But see, the king understood this loophole or this workaround is that while you couldn't revoke a previous edict, you could write another edict that would counteract the first one. And that's what he does. And so that's part of why he gives Mordecai his signet ring. And he says, I mean, this is so interesting you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. You can write whatever you want. Full autonomy, full power, 
complete immunity, whatever you need. You, you've got the signet ring. And so uh, in verse 9, the king's scribes are summoned. And then notice in verse 10, and he wrote in the name of the king, or of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then the letters go out to all of the provinces throughout the kingdom. There's this really interesting thing that's happening here, and, and, and I think there's actually a great application for you and I in our life with respect to this. Let, let me go back to verse 8 here for a minute. Right, Mordecai was given freedom to write in the king's authority. I mean, the king said to him, you can write however you please, whatever you need, whatever needs to be stated. You have the authority granted to you by the king to do this. And so all authority, all resources, all recourse, all power has been granted to Mordecai. And yet I think this very same truth in a very rich sense is applied to you and I with respect to our lives in the spirit. And that the spirit of God, I mean, think about this. The spirit of God lives and dwells inside of us. The authority of the king doesn't only reside within us, but the spirit of God actually lives within us. I got to tell you, sometimes I'm just bewildered, bewildered that as, as followers of Jesus, we can act as if we have no power, no authority, no resources, or no recourse over anything in our life. We will allow Satan to push us around. We'll allow um, circumstances or situations or issues in our life to dictate and drive how it is that we live. We, we will just accommodate or cave to sin in our life. And my question is, Why? Why would we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we allow that? When the power of the king actually resides within us. It's a fascinating thing. Like, why would we do this? Why, why do I let sin drive my life? Why, why do I let circumstances or my past or these issues or whatever it is dictate and determine how I live? Now, Hear me very clearly on this. In and of ourselves, you and I have nothing. Okay, so it's not like you and I have this power on our own of like, well, if we try harder, we do more, or if we can accomplish more, then we do this. It's the power of God within us. See, we have the presence and the authority of the king, and not just King Ahasuerus. We have the presence and the authority of the true king in your life and in my life. In a practical sense, here's how it plays out. You think about all these issues in your life. You have the power of prayer at your disposal. Use it. You have God's word that, that, that you can, I mean, most of us have like five, six, seven, eight copies. And not to mention what we have on our phone and our tablet. Open it, follow it, obey it. You have God himself actually living inside of you, giving you wisdom and direction. Yield to him. And here the king gives Mordecai and Esther this, this authority, this ability to, to do what needs to be done. And in that same way, Jesus gives us that same authority, that same power, that same recourse. And yet, I'm shocked at how often as believers, we don't live in that. Let's live in the authority that, that we have in Christ. And so this edict comes out. Now notice what is actually said in the edict. Look at verse 11. Here's what's actually written in it. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather. Right, words mean things here. Look at what it says. And defend their lives. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or of any people or province that might attack them. Children and women included. And to plunder their goods. Now some people have 
serious issue with this edict. If it was so wrong for Haman to do this to the Jews, why in the world would God allow the Jews to do this to others? Well, a couple of things. First of all, what the edict is actually accomplishing is it's allowing the Jews to defend themselves. That's the primary purpose of this. And second of all, when you look at some of the things that are written here and you're like, man, that, that, there's no way that this could possibly be right. What, what, what's most likely happening is that this was probably the only way to accurately convey and communicate the severity of what the Jews were allowed to do should someone try to attack them. It's an attempt to truly counteract Haman's first decree. And so this new edict is written, and then um, I love, look at verse 16 and 17. This just cracks me up. Here's the Jews' response to this. It goes out uh, to the provinces. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, uh, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. I mean, you'd probably feel the same way if you'd been sold into slaughter, and now you have uh, some recourse. It goes on and says this, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear the Jews had fallen on them. So now we, we go from like, we're going to kill you all to we're Jewish. We're with you, right? I mean, just like this complete reversal. And what's happening, right? This is God sparing his people from impending destruction and disaster. That's what's happening. That's what God is doing. And God's favor is so, I mean, it's so unmistakably clear, right? That, that the people literally are like, well, we're Jewish now. We're, we're just completely reorienting our lives. We're now Jewish, seeing the evidence of God's work and people responding to that. This new edict for God's people. Notice this secondly, verse or chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. So you have this new edict, right? We're undoing what has been done. Secondly, um, now, now we're going to do what needs to be done. And you have God's deliverance of his people. And look at chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> It says, now in the twelfth month, back in chapter 8 we were in the third month, now we're in the twelfth month. Nine months has, has passed in between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Okay, so the, the, there's quite a bit of time uh, that's gone by. And now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, uh, that's the day when everything was supposed to happen. Check, now, verse 1 is really, really interesting. On the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And in one sense, we see that the Jews actually are able to defend themselves. We see that the Jews are able to respond to this initial threat. We see that the Jews are victorious. But I think there's something else here in verse 1 that I want to just pause for a moment. And I think it's really, really important for us to remember this. I mean, keep in mind, right, Haman's been dead for the better part of a year uh, at this point. Um, what we were just talking about at the end of chapter 8, all these people now who, who initially were opposed to the Jews and now are like, hey, we're Jewish, we're with you, we, uh, we, we don't want to fight you. And yet, notice what you see in verse 1 over and over and over again. People who refer to the Jews as enemies, people who hope to gain mastery over the Jews, and then at the end of verse 1, it talks about those who hated the Jews. See, what, what I want you to see is that even though all these things had fallen into um, the Jews' favor, there were still people that hated them. 
there were still people that wanted to see them destroyed. There were still people that wanted to see them annihilated. And, and the broader application here is we're talking about the people of God, which is applicable to you and I, loved ones. Here's what I need you to gra- grab. Here's what I need you to gather is that this reality has not changed. If you're going to follow Jesus, hear me when I say this, if you are going to follow Jesus, you will undoubtedly encounter people who will hate, despise, revile, shun, and want nothing to do with you. Did you hear that? It will happen. Show of hands. How many people in this room are people pleasers? Don't displease me by not raising your hand if you actually are, all right? Maybe that's unfair to say it that way, right? People pleasers, right? Some of you are like, well, I wasn't going to raise my hand, but now I have to, right? Um, Now, listen, listen. All of us at some level are guilty of wanting to please others. Some of you would actually do well to try and be a little bit more guilty. Like if you actually cared, we would appreciate that, okay? But some of you, listen, some of you, you really struggle. Hey, the lights just went out. Um, some of you, some, apparently Brian didn't want me to talk about this. All right. Um, some of you really struggle with what other people think about you. And while, while in one sense, this is for everyone, this is specifically for those of you who struggle with this idea of being a people pleaser. Listen, listen, listen to me as I say this. If everyone in your life, if everyone that you know likes you, and everyone that, um, that knows you likes you. You are not living life the way that Jesus lived life. Do you hear that? If everyone that knows you and everyone that you know likes you, you are not living your life in the same manner, in the same way that Jesus lived his life. I mean, th- think, think about this. The perfect, sinless Savior, like this guy, never wronged anyone. This is kind of eerie, man. The lights are going off. Got feedback. I hope, like, I mean, it's sunny now, but if lightning starts crashing around, we're out of here, okay? Um, But Jesus had people, right? The perfect, sinless Savior of the world had people who hated him. Doesn't it seem pretty arrogant to think that you and I could do something that Jesus was incapable of doing? I mean, it, 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 it's ridiculous, right? To think that. And, and so, so okay, I, I'm, I'm not saying to go out of here and try to be unlikable. Um, do not go home. Hey, mom, guess what? My pastor said I could be a jerk today at church. Best sermon ever. That's not what I'm saying. Not even close. What I'm saying is if Jesus couldn't do it, we're fooling ourselves if you and I think we can Further, let me just make sure we're, we're, we're clear. Do not confuse the offense of being a jerk with the offense of the gospel. There's a massive difference. If, 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 you're, um, if people don't like you because you're selfish or you're rude or you're arrogant or you're greedy or you're obnoxious, that one's on you, okay? That has nothing to do with Christ. But there will be people who will hate you solely because of your love of Jesus. And so let me just 
as gently and as graciously as I know how communicate this truth. You're crazy, right? You're crazy if you think you can follow Jesus and everyone is going to like you. Go read John 6. I think one of the most painful moments in all of Jesus' ministry. And people are walking away from him because he's saying hard things. And he turns to the disciples, are you going away too? I think it's a legitimate question he's asking in that moment. Are you guys going to leave me too? Am I going to lose you too? And of course, Peter's response is priceless. Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? What I want all of us, right? All of us in here is, is to be free from the burden of trying to win the approval of others when in reality it will never happen. I mean, even after everything's unfolded that it has and all these people who are becoming Jews still, right, 9-1, the enemies of the Jews, they want to gain mastery over the Jews, they hated the Jews. It's, it's just part of it, okay? All right, moving on. God's deliverance of his people. Here we go. Bigger picture here. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Verse 2. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Oswaris to lay hands on those who sought their harm. I think that's important. They didn't just go out wholesale. We're going to destroy everyone. We're going to fight those who want to fight us. We're going to defend ourselves. And no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents who also also helped the Jews. Right, The government is fighting for the Jews. Why? For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. They're like, I, I don't know what it is about that guy, but God, God responds to that guy. So we're going to follow him in this. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. And so in verse 6, it tells us that in Susa, the capital, 500 men died. Included in that uh, were the 10 sons of Haman. And then notice at the end of verse 10, what it says. It says, but they laid no hand to the plunder. So it's never about money for these guys. In fact, not once, not twice, but three times in chapter 9, it tells us in verse 15 and verse uh, 16 as well. But they laid no hands to the plunder. They laid no hands to the plunder. And so starting in verse 11, it talks about, hey, can we, uh, we can't just defend ourselves here in the capital, but this has gone out to the entire um, uh, kingdom and we want to see defense there. And so you see that through uh, verse uh, 19 where they're defending themselves. In fact, it says in uh, verse 16 that 75,000 of those who hated the Jews uh, were killed uh, throughout the rest of the kingdom. And so what you have, God's deliverance of his people, one thing that we see in this is you have God's people are spared from destruction. God's people are spared from destruction. This is God at work in in protecting his people. Um, Verse 2, no one could stand against them. Uh, right, the, uh, the, the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. Right? It's uh, God's people are spared from destruction. This is salvation by God's hand. It's God rescuing and God delivering his people. Which, ironically enough, is the very same thing that we see God do in the New Testament through the person of Jesus. Isn't it? I mean, it's the same thing. We see the same thing, that God's people are rescued and spared from destruction, from wrath, from judgment, uh, for, for, from annihilation through the person of Jesus. Second Corinthians 5 talks about 
Um, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the wrath of God actually doesn't fall upon you and I. The punishment that you and I deserved when we sinned against God, when we violated God's righteous rules and, and, and covenants and commands, when we've told God, you know what, I can do it better. I don't need you. I can do it better without you. I can do it my way. I can accomplish this. The punishment, the consequence that we deserve that should have fallen to us is actually then placed upon Christ. And as Christ goes to the cross in your place and in my place, loved ones, what then is accomplished for us is that you and I now have the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon us. It's incredible that God's people are spared from destruction. Let me just pause here for a moment. This idea of God's people. I've had conversations with people before where they just, even that phrase is, really bothers them. God has a people? Why does God have a people? Why can't all people be God's people? Why, why does God have a people? It, it seems kind of exclusive. It seems intolerant. I mean, honestly, some people are like, it's racist. He's got a people and he excludes all these other people. What's that about? What, what's he doing in this? Well, I think when we understand the purpose and the reason for God's people, it helps us to understand what God's actually after. So hear me when I say this. And then you've got to let me finish the argument before you get angry and want to start pounding out an angry email to me. Israel is not special. Did you hear that? Israel is not special in and of themselves. In the same way that you and I are not special in and of ourselves. Most, if not all of us in this room, would call ourselves and consider ourselves to be God's people. And we're not special in and of ourselves. See, it's understanding the intent that God had for his people and the purpose that he has for his people that really helps us to understand this. Because you can go all the way back to Genesis 12 and, and you're introduced to this guy named Abram before he becomes Abraham and God gives him this promise. He says, I want you to move and oh, by the way, you're going to have this insane lineage to the time he's 75 and he has no offspring. So that's kind of a wild promise. Um, but maybe the wilder promise in that is you will be a blessing to all of the nations. And then you fast forward to the book of Exodus and you get to Exodus 19 and this is right after the, um, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt and they're on the other side of the Red Sea and God is beginning to speak to them and he tells them, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. Well, what's the role of a priest? Well, the priest is the go-between of God and man. See, what God was telling Israel from the very beginning is your point, your purpose is I'm going to set you aside, not because I love you more, or you're better, or, or you're awesome. I'm going to set you aside, and you are tasked with the mission of telling the rest of the world about me. You are to be distinct from all other people so that they will see what it is to follow me. In fact, um, God, chooses, God, God actually tells Israel why he chose them. In Deuteronomy 7, God says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Now you read that, you're like, well, I don't know, man. I think God's pretty high on these guys. Well, listen to what he says. I've chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Why, God? Why would you do that? Well, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and shows you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Not only were you not special, you're actually insignificant. 
I could have gone a number of other ways. He goes on, he says this, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The motivation and the purpose for God's people is rooted in God's love, his character, and his conduct. Conduct. It has nothing to do with the actual people and everything to do with who God is. So God is saying, I love you, and that's what makes you special. And the same is true for us. And so we talk about the people of God here and the people of God being spared from destruction. There's nothing special in who we are. It's, it's the, the specialness is in who we belong to. Because we belong to God, right? Because we're His possession, that's what makes us special. That's where there's value and worth and identity. And it's rooted in God's character and His work, not in anything that we've done. And so we talk about God's people here. Don't don't start thinking like, oh, well, we're special or awesome or super spiritual. No, no, no. The, God's people are, are very broken, needy, and messed up people. That's who God's people are. And, and in case um, you don't know, there's this super long book that chronicles just how messed up and broken uh, they are and how messed up and broken we are. But God's people are those that God have moved to a place of understanding their need of Jesus. Does that make sense? Is there clarity on that? Right? And so these people, God's people, are spared from destruction and wrath in the same way that you and I are spared from destruction and wrath through the person of Jesus. And so you have, right, you have here uh, God's people being spared from destruction. What you also have in chapter 9 is that God's enemies are given over to destruction. God's enemies are given over to destruction. It's a hard truth. That's a hard word there. It's true. When you read through this, what happens? Well, those who opposed God are destroyed. They're killed. They're slaughtered. We don't, we don't really like talking about this. This doesn't really square with the, the, the social narrative of our day. This doesn't really fit with, well, you know, we want a God to be a God of love. And so sometimes we pull this ostrich act where we want to stick our head in the sand and it's like, well, if we wait long enough, maybe this will just go away. It's not going away. Right? We've got to be honest and real about this. You're not going to be able to avoid talking about this. Let me just shoot straight on, on, on Esther 9 here for a moment in, in, a, in a, maybe in a total sense or comprehensive sense. It's bloody and offensive. It's bloody and offensive. Which, ironically enough, so is the cross. The cross is bloody, and it's incredibly offensive. But it's not offensive because it offends you and I. It's offensive because of our sin. We're the offenders. And people get really, really squeamish. We get really, really squirmy about God's judgment. Listen, we get uncomfortable with that because we don't want to be honest about ourselves. That's what it comes down to. We don't want to talk about the wrath and the judgment and the justice of God because at the end of the day, it requires that we have to talk about our sin. We have to talk about our rebellion, our rejection of God, our doing things our way instead of doing it God's way. 
And when you start pressing into sin, you've you got to press the fact that it is heinous and it is reviling. And the moment that we begin to deviate away from the reality of sin is the moment that we begin to deviate away from the, from the truth around the wrath of God and what's really happening and what's really going on in that. This right here, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, this right here, it's the biggest hang-up for most people when it comes to Christianity. It's a huge hang-up. This is a huge issue for them. Why is, and, and, and it's usually manifested in questions like this, why, like why is God so angry? Why, why is God so bloody? Can't he just lighten up a little bit? Which questions like that betray a lack of understanding about sin. That's what it's really telling us. Is that we don't really know how destructive and how costly sin actually is. We don't understand the depths of our own wrongdoing, the ways that we've exploited and manipulated God for our own well-being. We don't really get how sin has played out, not only in our own lives, but in the cosmic reality. And they don't realize that God's anger is directed at sin, which is this heinous affront to him. Keep in mind, it cost God his son's life to deal with this issue. I don't know about you. I wouldn't give any of my children for any of you for anything. I love you. I don't love you like that. Figure it out on your own. I wouldn't do it. Even the child that's driving me nuts on their worst day, I might be tempted to consider it for a minute, right? Uh, But I wouldn't do it, all right? I wouldn't do it. And we thank God that he's not like us because he did it. When we think about this destruction, we think about God's wrath, and, and I, man, I, this is what happens to God's enemies. Hear me, loved ones, hear me when I say this. Destruction is what happens to God's enemies. Some of you may be sitting here this morning, and truth be told, you're an enemy of God. I am just telling you straight up what happens. Destruction is coming for you. Destruction is what we all deserve. And the only reason any of us won't see destruction is because of God's incredible and infinite mercy and grace. But if you were sitting here this morning and you are an enemy of God, this is the reality of what's coming. God's enemies are given over to destruction. Now, we, we don't like to talk about God's wrath, and because we don't like to talk about it, I think we're kind of ignorant on a lot of things with it, and there's some pretty common misconceptions around that. Let me just quickly deal with three common misconceptions of God's wrath that I think are maybe helpful for us. Three common misconceptions of God's wrath. Here's the first, uh, and I've just kind of phrased these um, maybe in... Acute might not be the right word, but um, maybe it is. First of all, that it's time-sensitive. Here's what I mean by that. We talk about God and God being a God of wrath as if, like, well, you know, that's who he was before. And, like, back in the Old Testament, you had the God of wrath, and he was, like, the angry guy, and he was always destroying people. But now, now, we've got God 2.0, and this God is totally different. He's a loving God, and he's a kind God, and he's a gracious and a merciful God. You don't understand who God is if you think we've got God 2.0. It's not time sensitive. There's not an attribute of God that belonged to him in the past and doesn't belong to him today. I mean, think about this for a minute. Think about this. If God was something here and he is not that here, or if he was um, not something here and he is that here, there's, there's two massively um, uh, heretical implications of this. The first is that God changes. And if God changes, we're sunk. 
Because all that thing about, well, God, God does not change and his love does not change and his promises won't change and he will fulfill them. Well, if God changes with respect to his wrath, then why can't that change? Here's the other problem with this. The implication that God was or was not something and now he is or is not that today implies at some point in time God was insufficient, incomplete, or lacking. Joked about lightning a few minutes ago. <laughs> this might be the time for it, right? Oh yeah, well yeah, he's changed. He needed something. He was insufficient. I'm not going there. I'm not willing to say that. I'm not willing to suggest that God lacked anything. Because he hasn't. That is a heretical thought. God's wrath is not time sensitive. God is as equally wrathful from Genesis 1 as he is through Revelation 22. I think, I think one of the biggest, I'll call it a mistake. I think one of the biggest mistakes, one of the, one of the biggest ways we fail, this is why we preach a lot out of the Old Testament, is, is we don't do a good job. Historically in the church, we have not done a good job of helping our people to see the grace of God in the Old Testament because it's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. Um, and so what we see is the judgment. We don't see the grace. And so we hold to this misconception that God's wrath is time sensitive. Second of all, second misconception, it can be canceled out. It can be canceled out. Now, let me distinguish this from the idea that God's wrath can be appeased or satisfied. No doubt, God's wrath can be appeased and satisfied. We know that to be true. Romans 3, 1 John 4, a host of other places we could go with respect to that. So that's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm saying. In an attempt, here's what we do, right? In, in an attempt to soften um, the reality and the harshness of God's wrath to those around us, what we will often do is we want to emphasize other attributes of God. So I talk a lot about God's love or his mercy or his grace or his kindness or his compassion or whatever. And, and I think in the back of our minds sometimes we're like, well, if I just talk about that enough, it kind of cancels out or eliminates the fact that God is equally wrathful. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. Further, let me just tell you that God's wrath has to be seen in the context of his love. That's what actually makes it love. Like when I understand what God's love has done and how it's compelled him to move and work and respond in light of wrath, that's what makes his love so profound. And so if you, if you want to minimize his wrath, you actually undermine his love because they're connected to each other. They, they play into each other. They feed into each other. Th these are items that you cannot separate from one another. Right? We don't eliminate justice by talking about grace Actually, justice and grace are both elevated when we talk about each other in the same way that wrath and love or, 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 or things that maybe from our perspective look like they're competing with each other when in reality they're actually filling each other up and giving us a fuller sense. You're not going to cancel out God's wrath. Uh, thirdly, this. We have this common misconception around God's wrath that God isn't to be feared. I, I understand how we get to this point. I understand the logic in terms of how we arrive here. I'm just telling you that it's wrong. So let me just say this. Let me state it in an affirmative sense. You and I are to fear God. We're to fear God. Did you hear that? You and I are to have a fear of God. I go to a hundred places in the scriptures. We'll just do a few for the sake of time. Isaiah Isaiah 6 is one of my favorite texts in all the scriptures. I go here often. Um, he sees the hem of God's garment 
and he's like, I'm dead. It'd be like the equivalent of seeing the bottom of someone's sock today. And he's like, I'm dead. See, he understood the holiness and the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of himself. How about um, Jesus at the transfiguration? Right, Jesus is being transfigured and, and, and Peter and James and John are there and they're like, oh, what do we do with this? And, and the, text, um, it, it, the text says they didn't know what to say because they were terrified. And God nowhere in those, um, in, in those accounts is saying, don't be afraid. He doesn't tell them that. Now there are times where angels will show up or things will be going on and God will specifically say, don't be afraid. Transfiguration wasn't one of those times. What does God actually say to him? Listen to him. I think God actually plays into the fear a little bit and the terror a little bit. He's like, yeah, darn right, you should be afraid. Listen to this guy. It's my son. John, in Revelation 1, he sees the Son of Man. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. See, when people have encounters with the living God, they don't write books about it. They think they're going to die in the Scriptures. That's what happens in the Bible. How about this? Hebrews 10, 29 through 31 says this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, and I was going to quote a couple of times from Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And on the heels of that argument, here's the author's conclusion. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Loved ones, God is to be feared. This misconception that, well, we're not supposed to be afraid of God or we shouldn't fear God. I understand the logic. I'm just telling you, the scriptures won't let you go there. Like, okay, 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 we're to fear God. Like, how does that play out in my life? How does that bear? What do I do with that? Listen to this quote I came across this week. I think it's really helpful for what do we do with this. Listen. We accommodate sin in our hearts because there's no fear of God in our lives. We accommodate sin in our hearts because there's no fear of God in our life. I don't have a healthy fear and respect of God, so I become really casual and indifferent with respect to sin. I live radically different, uh, differently than I should Because I don't have a healthy fear of who God is. Now, I'll just tell you, Esther chapter 9 is a violent, it is a violent engagement with sin. The cross is a violent engagement with sin. Jesus in his teaching in Matthew 5 is actually a violent engagement with sin. If your hand causes you to sin, what does he tell you? Cut it off! Anyone cut off their hand because of sin? If your eye causes you to sin, what does he tell you? Pluck it out. Of course, he's not actually telling us to do that. We'd be limbless and blind. Um, It wouldn't work. But what he is pushing us to is he's saying, how far, how far, how far are you willing to go to see sin put to death? In the same way that God comes swift and hard against sin, it's it's the same manner in which you and I should be doing so in our lives. Why do I tolerate unrighteous anger? Why am I casual with my temper? Why am I friends with my lust? Why do I make excuses for my gossip or my slander? Why do I make jokes about my pride? Here's why. We accommodate sin in our hearts because there's no fear of God in our lives. Let 
God is to be feared. His enemies are given over. So on the heels of that, you come to Esther 9, verse 20, and then through the end of the book, and really for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, I'll just briefly summarize. Essentially what they do is they memorialize this event. They create this new feast, the Feast of Purim, uh, which is still celebrated today by Jews. Uh, This and Hanukkah are still celebrated. So many of the other things in the Old Testament aren't, but this uh, feast actually is. Um, In fact, let me just read to you verse 27 and 28 of chapter 9. It says this, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. See, the final thing we see is that we're to remember God's work. Right? Remembering God's work. That's what's happening here. They memorialize these events and, and, and they institute this feast of Purim. And, and that we too, loved ones, we too should remember God's work in our lives. We, we want to remember his provision. We want to remember his faithfulness. We want to care for, remember his care and his love and his, his, his help and his work and his, um, his pruning and his encouragement and his conviction. We want to remember all these things. We need, hear me when I say this, we need times of remembrance because our tendency is to forget. We need times of remembrance because our tendency is to forget. We forget all the ways that God has provided and all the ways that God has cared for us and worked on our behalf and, and, and helped and spared us. In fact, I did something this week. We'll get to this in a moment. Um, we talk about principles or applications, but I'll just tell you now, I, did some, I just did an exercise this week where just in this last year, I just began to write down uh, as an exercise. Just one year, things, God, I want to remember. I want to remember and be reminded of. And, and I got to tell you, it was honestly embarrassing how many things just began to flow. I mean, pages of stuff just in the last year. And how many of those things is like, man, I totally forgotten about that. Oh my goodness, that was just this year. And after I had done this, I, I, I started working just through my calendar. I was like, oh man, I totally forgot about that. And I, it was embarrassing. See, we need times of remembrance because our tendency is to forget. So not just in the last year. I mean, it would be horrifying to go back the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, how many things do we say? I don't even remember that. And yet so profound in that moment. And one of the things that you look at the Feast of Purim, what, what God did is he built into the nation of Israel regular times and rhythms that forced them to think back and consider all that God had done for them. How we need that today. We need those times and those rhythms to be reminded those memorials that, that we would have time where we would stop and we would look back. Here's just a few in my life that, that I, I've begun to, you know, different levels bear out. One is um, on our anniversary. In fact, actually this week, Becky and I will celebrate our 14th anniversary, um, which for some of you are... <laughs> Thank you. 14 amazing years for me. I won't speak for Becky. I would hope she'd use the same word, but maybe not. Um, but uh, no, we, we honestly, we have a great marriage, and I love my wife, and I'm thankful for her incredible love for me. Uh, one of the things we've done every year, every year of our marriage is we'll get away. And so a few weeks ago, we went to Portland um, and got away for a few days, and uh, we've enjoyed that more since we've had kids, and we've needed that more uh, since we've had kids. Um, but inevitably, one of the things that happens during that time is we just begin to remember all that God has done. 
And so on anniversaries, right, for you couples, stop, look back, reflect on that last year of all that God has done on birthdays. Um, my wife can tell you I grew up in a home where birthdays meant almost nothing. I mean, to me, it was literally just the next day I could care less. Um, and a lot of times, back would be like, what do you want to do for your birthday? I'm like, nothing. I don't care. It's another day. I'm going to go to work or, you know, whatever it is. But I've, I've just begun to appreciate you know, that, that that's a day where, where you look back and, and you go, God gave me this year. And he's given me this upcoming one as well. But in that time to stop and reflect and to look back, I mean, you think about holidays as Christians, there's three obvious ones for us. Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving, I mean, those are three days that as believers, we should be really good at uh, taking advantage of those and remembering the, 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 all that God has done. See, here, here's what happens when you stop and you look back. When you remember God's faithfulness in the past, it gives you confidence for his faithfulness in the future. And that's what was so helpful for me to sit there and just begin to write things and other things coming to my mind. I was like, oh my goodness, I forgot about this. And it just kept flowing. And, and, and I remember just sitting there and I'm looking at the stuff that's in front of me and I'm going, why would God be any different on these things? And he's been in the past. That's the beauty of remembrance. When I remember what God has done in the past, it gives me confidence for what he's going to do in the future. We remember God's work. Let me just briefly, I mean, honestly, we've already talked about all three of these things, but maybe just in a more firm, direct way, just highlight three things from the text. Applications for us here, uh, things that we walk out, you kind of really hold on to uh, this morning. First of all, this, <coughs> live in the authority of the king. Live in the authority of the king. Man, I've just I found this to be so helpful in my life this week to, to be reminded of the fact God lives inside of me. Um, I have resources and recourse for anything that would come into my life. I can't handle it in and of myself, but I never have to handle it in and of myself. The power of the Spirit lives inside of me. I need to yield to Him. I have the authority of God's Word at my disposal whenever I have the ability to go to God in prayer. I mean, there's so many different things uh, that we could, we could go with this. When it comes to sin, I don't have to cave. When it comes to doubt or worry, I don't have to succumb to that. I can live in the authority of the king in my life. I just exhort each and every one of us to do so here uh, today. Second of all, that you and I would fear God. That we would fear God. There's always that tension when you talk about the fear of God of like, well, you know, God, God loves us and, and, and he's a father and he's a friend and, and those are true. Um, but I wonder for how many of us has God do we view God more like a buddy and a friend or like an associate than we do as the all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, ruling, reigning Lord over everything? So I'm not saying that God isn't a friend. God is a friend, but he is far more than just a friend. We need to fear God. We accommodate sin in our hearts because there's no fear of God in our lives. And then finally this, that we would remember God's work. I think all of us need to be reminded of this truth. Some of you desperately need to be reminded of this truth. And I would just exhort you that you go home today. Like, don't, don't say I'm going to do it this week or I'm going to get, like, go home today. Sit down at your computer, sit down with a notepad, piece of paper, give yourself some time. And last month, last six months, last year, last five years, I don't care, whole life, do whatever you want, but just begin to remember all that God has done. Begin to recount that. Begin to see the faithfulness of God. Begin to see the providence of God. You're going to be a little bit embarrassed at how many things you've forgotten. And in that moment, you start thinking about it and you go, golly, this guy's constantly at work in my life. 
but I think you're going to walk away from that and you're going to start looking at the things that are in front of you a little bit differently. Because what you've just seen is all the ways that God saw you through. I mean, one of, one of the things, just even in this last year, I was looking at some of the stuff, and I, I remember thinking about some of the things in this last year. I don't see how we get through this. And now I'm on the back, and I'm like, oh, well, that wasn't that bad. Just was. Right? Sometimes perspective is so helpful. Write it down. Um, and, and be blessed by all the ways that God has saw you through uh, all the things that he has brought into your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. And I thank you for this book. Thank you for this story. It's such a great story. And uh, God, I'm even thinking in this moment, you're, you're a better storyteller than anybody. Um, no one tells a story like you do, God. Uh, and no one has written a story like you have. And no story is greater than yours. And so God, we thank you. We thank you for the part that we get in your story. We thank you that we are a part of your story. God, we thank you that you um, have not left us to ourselves, but that you're actively at work within your people. Scott, I pray. I pray as we just think about your work. I pray as we think about um, how you've spared us and saved us. God, as I think about the destruction and the wrath that is rightfully yours because of our sin. God, would we be compelled would we be driven? Would we be people who long to see the truth of your gospel go forward because of a great love that we have for you? That we would want people to know the incredible story of our God and how he has worked on behalf of his people. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, that we are delivered to you. God, we pray that that would be true of every person in this room and that you would be honored in all of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.